Yeah, conflict positivity is understanding that when difference is present and we are showing up fully as ourselves and we are speaking up, we have different needs, we have different beliefs, we have different expectations because we're different people. And that is true for every single person on this planet. So if we are all showing up with our different needs, beliefs, expectations, and commitments, then inevitably there's going to be conflict. So to me, the definition of conflict is just the presence of those differences, right? So if we are surprised or ashamed or avoidant when conflict arises, then we are not going to, either we're not going to engage with it at all, or we are not going to engage with it skillfully. Whereas if we have a conflict positive frame, then we understand, hey, if we're all allowed to show up as we are, then conflict is inevitable. So let's just learn how to do it well. Let's learn how to minimize the harm. Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. We are so glad you're here. I just don't feel like you're listening to me. Those words hurt. Not just because I'm someone who really prides themselves on being a good listener, but because the words were coming from one of the most important people in the world to me, my wife. We were standing in our driveway. My sister had our kids. And it was our nine-year anniversary. Now, somehow, what started as a lovely evening and our first real break from life at home with three kids during a quarantine had blown up into an argument about work and life and us. And as is the case with most of our conflicts, like an actor getting his cue, the adult Dan takes a back seat, so conflict Dan, who's more like a child, can step forward. His proven strategy? Withdraw, go silent, and go away. It's a strategy that keeps me safe. It's a strategy that prevents progress and connection. As I stood there in the driveway, Amidst my own internal withdrawal, I couldn't help but think back to a recent client session. After exhausting and overwhelming himself, really doing anything he could to avoid conflict, a client finally hit a breaking point, and we found ourselves asking together, what if he could see conflict in a new light? What if instead of it being this scary thing where his worth and belonging were threatened, what if it was a place where growth occurred? As I thought of him, and I turned my attention back to the moment with my wife and asked myself the same questions. What if conflict that we were finding ourselves in in that moment was not a sign of things being broken, but actually an invitation for growth and improvement? And what if being with and leaning in could be a means for deepening our connection instead of threatening it? Now, there's a larger conflict and tension that we're all engaged in in this moment, one that surfaced most recently with the tragic killing of George Floyd but one that's been going on for a very long time. It's a confrontation with privilege, inequality, and injustice. Now I realize here too, the childhood Dan has been mostly leading the charge for me, which has been a withdrawal. And I recognize even being able to do that is from a place of privilege, but that's not enough anymore. And I see the need for change. And here too, I'm asking myself the question, what if leaning in to the hard stuff what if heading towards the tension and the conflict could be a means for deepening our connection instead of threatening it? 
I am thrilled and honored to bring you all into this incredibly important conversation with Friends of Reboot, Empower Dynamic Consultants through their partnership at Evolving Dynamics, Regina Smith and Dr. Amanda Aguilera. In this conversation with Jerry, they discuss privilege, injustice, our ancestry, and the opportunity present for all of us to wake up and engage with the tension in front of us. It's been a tough season for leaders, not to mention the world at large. Some parts of the world are shifting back to pre-pandemic ways of life, while others continue to deal with the challenges and restrictions that time has brought. Regardless of context, many of the folks we work with continue to deal with exhaustion and burnout. And for those returning to some semblance of normalcy, the challenge of moving beyond a year's worth of trauma are harrowing. Once again this fall, the Reboot team will be facilitating a virtual retreat designed to help leaders reset, reconnect with themselves and others and build inner resilience. Join us this November for a unique experience that combines remotely facilitated time in nature, resilience practices, coaching exercises, and fellowship with other leaders doing their best to lead with grace, strength, and authenticity. You will leave with a greater awareness of your personal leadership habits and strategies for being the leader you want to be. To learn more or apply, submit a scholarship request for the Reboot Weekend. Head to reboot.io slash weekend. Good morning. Good morning, Jerry. It's so um, delightful to have you both on the show uh, with us today. And before we jump in, uh, let me just ask each of you to introduce yourself. Amanda, I'll just pick you first. Okay. Uh, yes, my name is Dr. Amanda Aguilera, and I am a trainer and consultant in a lot of things, but mostly power dynamics, restorative practices, and uh, I work in partnership uh, with Regina. Oh, and which leads us, Regina. I am Regina. I currently work at Naropa University as the executive director for Mission Integration and Student Affairs. And Amanda and I work there together as well. And also I'm a power dynamics consultant and a specialist in human connection. Oh, I love that title. I'm going to seal that title, specialist in human connection. Um, and before we jump into the conversation, it's, it's worth noting, kind of as a disclaimer, uh, uh, Regina and I are colleagues at Naropa University, where I serve as a trustee, and I'm now in my 10th year as a trustee, wow. so that's how old I am. But um, I first became familiar with your work, both of your work, through Naropa, and I'll say it now at the start of the conversation, whatever progress I've made in uncovering my own biases has come not only from direct conversation that we've had, but in watching the work that you do and how um, beautifully you hold uh, this work. And I am deeply and profoundly grateful to each of you. So thank you for that. So I, I, I reached out and asked uh, you to join in conversation because it feels like we're in an incredibly important moment in time 
where um, because of the powerful work of activists across the country, we are having conversations that have been needed to have convert to, to have been had for decades, centuries, millennia. And um, my deep, profound hope is that the movement and the spirit and the feeling is sustained because I don't know any other way for us to create change. And so um, my hope was to talk about what I often think of as the sort of unspoken, unexpressed portion factor in the entire complex calculation of uh, racial inequity uh, in, in our societies and in our organizations. And that is the notion of equity, the notion of power. And, and my firm belief that uh, however well-intentioned we may be in overcoming unconscious biases, until we address um, power dynamics, um, the system will just go back to its, its old ways. Um, and we won't be able to change economic inequality, and we won't be able to change the ways that we other people until we really address power. So like, Regina, tell me about power and how power works. Yeah, well, um, a lot of my understanding around power has been influenced and shaped by the work of Dr. Sir Barstow, who wrote about the right use of power. Um, she specifically set forth a framework for helping professionals, but in my encounter with it, and I think other folks who've encountered it, um, couldn't help but see its value of using that framework to look at what she calls status power or the power that comes with the identities that we don't get to choose, the identities that we're born with. And some of the things that I learned from her that were groundbreaking are, even though I'd grown up looking at power or seeing power portrayed as only one way, which is like power over or people exploiting other people for their own selfish needs. That's what I thought power was, or that power was only something that a very select uh, few people uh, were given when they were born. Power is actually energy, and it's neutral, and we all are born and have a birthright to claim our personal power. And looking at personal power has been a lifelong journey for me of how I can actualize and make greater use of my personal power. And then we do look at the fact that there are groups of people who are born with more power than others, that our culture confers power on certain groups of people and allows them access to greater resources and opportunities than other groups are afforded. And that again is status power. And then there's also role power, which is the temporary power that we think of as earned um, that comes with a position. But, you know, of course, the positions you're afforded are also influenced by these social groups that you're born into and also by how much access you are given to your personal power. So that's a general framework that we work with in terms of dimensions of power. 
And then we get to structural power and institutional power. And of course, that's what this current Black Lives Movement is about. It's about the ways that institutional power has been abused uh, specifically by the police force. But of course, that's also condoned by the justice system and reinforced by other um, institutions like the media. Um, so when we're talking about power, we're talking about um, kind of the intersectionality or the ways that all of these types of power are showing up in this present moment. Amanda, you curious if you had anything to add to that and build upon it? Yeah, I mean, I think that what Regina outlined for me and, and what Dr. Bosto offered is really uh, a useful language. It gives us a framework and organized language for talking about all of these different types of power. And it feels fundamentally empowering. I think a lot of conversations that are had about power feel really disempowering. Whereas this, when we start from this neutral, non-dual frame, it can actually feel empowering because, oh, I actually have personal power that I can use no matter what my role or status power is. And I can cultivate that personal power. And then also the concept of collective power, which we see like the Black Lives Matter movement and many other movements, we can use the power that we do have collectively to influence that systemic power, that structural power, that institutional power. So for me, it is, um, it is a very empowering way of looking at this very serious issue that is causing a lot of harm because people don't understand the frame. They don't understand the intersectionalities. They don't understand how they fit in with that frame of power. I'm going to take a, my seat as a student here and really ask questions around that. And so jumping back, Regina, to, to some of the things that you shared. The status power that I have that was conferred upon me by society by way of my birth stems from uh, having been racialized as white, um, being cisgendered, and so much flows from just simply that simple act of boop, birth. Am I getting that right? Absolutely. And and then um, we can talk about the word privilege in a second, because I know that there's a correlation between those two uh, relationships. And what I'm also hearing from each of you is that, and this feels very Buddhist to me, is the notion that we're each born with certain kinds of power. And I'm imagining that it's not the existence of power or non-power that's the problem. It's the way in which the collective responds to the status power that um, is born. Do I have that right? Yes. yes. There is a right, then you have it. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> Amanda and I spend a little, just as a sidebar, we spend, and we're not the only ones, but just the inherently in our desire to even get it right is a cultural value you know um so one of the things that we're working on and evolving dynamics is really moving beyond the binary in our thinking uh right wrong you know white black 
having power, non-power, and just really trying to work with our thinking into this a non-dual, really working with a non-dual perspective because of the need to be right and to be on the right side or to be, see, you know, get it all right, be correct, check all the boxes, be linear in our thinking, all of that, there's cultural values embedded in that. I love that you just brought that in. I'll, I'll make a note to, to that Evolving Dynamics is the name of your consulting firm. And we'll have links to all of that, including Dr. Barstow's work. Yes. In our um, podcast notes. But um, Regina, you also just said something super important. It, it feels really important to me, which is this notion of the desire to be right, to get it right, um, feels uh, like a cultural value. And of course, the corollary to that is, oh my goodness, the shame of getting it wrong and being wrong, right? And um, leading and, and, and so closely allied to a concept I often um, speak with clients about, which is this output-driven mentality. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things I'm constantly monitoring myself for is, uh, is this internal voice that's speaking to me right now? Is this my voice or is this uh, the voice of white, mainstream, heteronormative, socialized mind? Um, I work with a lot of white people and sometimes it's hard to tell what is true for me and what I am kind of receiving as expectation and messages. And Amanda and I have spoken about um, perfectionism as an example of I work with folks, um, white women, cisgender women, who I feel like are very, they're badasses. I hope we can say that. They're very driven. They're very ambitious. They're very detail oriented. And there's a certain level of perfectionism. And one day when I was feeling really overwhelmed as their supervisor mm. <laughs> and really like I wasn't getting it right and I wasn't living up to their, potentially, this was a story in my head, their expectations of me as their boss. And then I slowed it down and I realized that they were holding themselves to the standard of perfection that they might have been socialized, again, trying to live up maybe to the white male standards. So their socialization was then impacting me and what I thought I should be and how I thought I should show up. And then I realized that that didn't have to be true for me. It didn't have to be my cultural standard. I could look to other ancestral lineages that were aligned with my culture. Audre Lorde, one of my favorite teachers from beyond, um, she says, the white man or the white father, she might say, says, I think, therefore I am. And the black mother, which lives in all, inside of all of us, says, I feel, therefore I can be free. And so I had to say, well, which one of those two... <laughs> You know, not that I always have to choose, but which one of those two is my lineage, you know, my lineage of funk and hip hop and jazz and uh, spirituals and black Baptist churches. And, you know, like, and how is that living in my work? 
And um, can I align myself with that rather than some other cultural standards that I'm that I can barely see because I'm the fish in the water, you know? Uh, I just need to pause. Um, that quote from Audre Lorde landed in my heart in a really powerful way. And um, as well as your identification that the Black Mother lives within all of us, which causes me to see the ways in which I, as a status-powered, I don't know if I'm using the phrase grammatically correctly, there's that rightness, uh, relates to the wish to feel and not really think and how it can trap me in a structure that actually doesn't serve anyone. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just thinking about, you know, Regina and I laugh all the time about my perfectionism. And I wear a bracelet that says progress, not perfection, which is a common phrase. But I think what is more appropriate is maybe connection, not perfection. Mm. So if we can center connection and come from that place, not only connection with ourselves, but connection with each other, uh, if we can start from there, it's a very different conversation. Absolutely. And so we look at power. I mean, you know, I ended up in this work of diversity and equity and inclusion and power dynamics um, somewhat by accident because I've actually, my first degree is in poetry. My second degree is in Buddhist psychology and contemplative psychotherapy. And, you know, and then being in the body that I'm in, I've always been um, kind of pulled into conversations around power and justice and equity, because in order to seek my own liberation, I came into contact with all of the barriers to that, which have to do with other people's misunderstandings of their identities and understandings of their identities. So I got into this conversation, into this work, somewhat um, happenstance, just like the causes and conditions that led me to doing this and finding that I had uh, some gift and some skill around navigating difficulty and being with discomfort, a lot of which I think I owe to my Naropa education because that's what we, we train in is being with the difficult and not turning away from suffering. But what I realized when people are like, well, what does poetry have to do with counseling and have to do with justice and equity and how, you know, how does it all fit together? And it's all about connection. Now, it's all about what's in the way of me feeling like I truly belong here, wherever here is, and what's in the way of other people feeling like they truly belong here, and what's in the way of us connecting. And uh, the ways that we've been socialized in our culture, the ways we've been taught to relate to our power have been barriers. Um, have kept us feeling separate, even though 
you know, that's not the reality. The reality is that we're interconnected. The reality is that no one is free until we are all free. And so we're kind of trying to help people to experience reality. But first we have to be able to see and to name and to navigate all of the ways in which what we've been taught about identity and power are in the way. I thought that image, I, last year on my version of a book tour, I just, I just was shocked at the number of people who presented or I saw as different, who found connection in words. And people ask how I can be optimistic even at this time when it feels like the world is a dumpster fire. And I'm realizing hearing you both that it's um, my desire, my, my primordial desire for connection and my ability to find that connection that gives me optimism, even in the midst of what feels like overwhelming um, pain and suffering. That reminds me of a training. I think Amanda and I were there together where they had us. It was one of those exercises where they say a statement. And if you feel, if you agree with the statement, you're on one side of the room. If you disagree with the statement, you're on another side of the room. And one of the statements, and again, being an older, the room was primarily white. Um, one of the statements was about like, do you have faith or believe or trust, um, something like that, that there will, that we'll be able to do this. We'll be able to figure out how to dismantle systemic racism. And most of the people were on the side of not believing that it's possible, not having the hope. And I was on the side of having the hope and believing it's possible. And I was also livid that so many white people were on the side of not believing it was possible because I felt there was a certain amount of choicelessness in my hope. There's a certain amount of choicelessness in my optimism. If we don't learn how to do this, what else is there? So even though I do think that I'm an optimist, uh, I, I consider myself radically optimistic, but I, don't, I also feel like there's a certain amount of choicelessness in it. Because what would it mean to my, to my children, my children's children, and I mean that not, not just biologically, but um, to the generations that are going to come after me if I don't have a kind of radical optimism about what is possible? I, I, I hear you. I, I don't want to live in a world where I've given up. Well, I've given up. It, that feels irresponsible. Um, and it feels like, uh, I do feel like my optimism is a choice. And for me, the optimism, it has to be beyond words. It has to be in action as well. It has to be, um, what am I willing to confront? One of my, uh, one of my favorite teachings from my college days was that systemic problems require systemic solutions. And... Um, if we're talking about systemic racism and institutionalized structures that need to be overcome, whether it's 
white supremacy or patriarchy, then um, we cannot but a, a approach that work without a systemic holistic view, which includes optimism, but not bound into an idealism that then, you know, is like a fair weather friend and just disappears when the wind blows in the wrong way. I think that the systemic problems come from a paradigm, you know, and that paradigm is dualistic. It is us versus them. It is competitive. Uh, and I don't think we can offer systemic solutions if they come from that dualistic paradigm. So while it is true that we need to address systemic issues with systemic solutions, it first has to come from a paradigm of non-duality, of cooperation, of inclusion, uh, and of of conflict positivity, which I think is not often, it's not a term often heard or used, but we have to be willing to engage in tension, in conflict, and be and have the skill to make that tension or conflict generative. Otherwise, we're going to recreate the same system in different clothes. Uh, it, can I uh, ask you to elaborate on that? Is that is that what you're meaning by conflict positivity? Yeah, conflict positivity is understanding that when difference is present and we are showing up fully as ourselves and we are speaking up, if you and me and Regina, if we look at each other, we are very different, right? We have different needs, we have different beliefs, we have different expectations because we're different people. And that is true for every single person on this planet, right? So if we are all showing up with our different needs, beliefs, expectations, and commitments, then inevitably there's going to be conflict. So to mm. me, the definition of conflict is just the presence of those differences, right? So if we are surprised or ashamed or avoidant when conflict arises, then we are not going to, in either we're not going to engage with it at all, or we are not going to engage with it skillfully. Whereas if we have a conflict positive frame, then we understand, hey, if we're all allowed to show up as we are, then conflict is inevitable. So let's just learn how to do it well. Let's learn how to minimize the harm, right? So that is part of what we are learning and that is part of changing the system, the systems, right? We have to learn how to engage differently. That, that's super helpful. It, it reminds me of some of the work I did in nonviolent communications training. And what occurs to me is the... Um, and I often do it kind of ham-handedly when, when, say, two clients come in and they're in conflict. Um, uh, I can feel the need to elevate the conflict, to, 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 to highlight it, to bring that tension out into the open. Um, and I can feel the desire to make the conflict go away as quickly as possible. 
because the it just doesn't feel um, safe in in so many ways. But this conversation is also helping me understand that um, when we apply or, 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 or when that impulse to make the conflict go away is applied to uh, inequality and inequity, uh, it exacerbates the, the harm and the, that is done to those who might come from a marginalized position relative to others, relative to the dominant paradigm. You're both nodding. Yeah, Regina. The cost of peace or not having conflict in our daily lives is usually uh, paid by the, mar- the persons in the down power role. So we're usually the ones who are silencing ourselves or squeezing ourselves into a frame that the dominant culture has provided in order to avoid conflict because neither group necessarily has been, had the skills to engage in conflict in such a way that it's been generative. And of course, historically, that conflict could have been or has been uh, life-threatening. You know, and that's what the current protests are also are about. It's like, yeah, we haven't been able to afford conflict. It's been deadly. And so to expand our capacity to be in conflict, um, as Amanda was saying, is the path, is, is the path forward um, so that folks in down power don't have to pay a disproportionate cost or there to be an artificial sense of, peace or agreement or not upsetting those in power. Do, do you see the Black Lives Matter protests as elevating the tension and, and making, uh, you know, my experience, I would use the word unavoidable, undeniable, the, the conflict that is actually been brewing so it's it, it, it's like there's been silenced conflict and now there are, are pockets because it's still just pockets pockets of voiced conflict am i seeing that correctly there's the correctly <laughs> well i do want to get it right <laughs> i can't tell you the truth with a capital t about the black lives movement <laughs> I can well, tell you how it's impacted me and what I, you know, what, how I've related to it, um, because I'm sure that there's about a million, you know, there's as many yeah. different stories as there are human beings engaged in conflict. But I do think yeah. the conflict is generative. Yes, yeah. I think that it, it has um, once again put forward reality in a way that because I think of the conditions of the pandemic, mm. people couldn't turn away from, or they were more, more, there were more people watching. And I think also people's hearts and bodies were in very different places um, when they did come in contact with bearing witness. They were in a place that they were more easily mobilized, impacted, um, but there's still a lot of mystery 
to it. And I think far greater minds than mine are analyzing why this time, why now, what exactly transpired to kind of, yeah, wake the world up again. 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 Right. Yeah. Which reminds me, is it that roomy line, don't go back to sleep? It's the... I think a lot of poets have, have told us <laughs> to stay awake. Um, recently, I watched a Ram Dass documentary and something, there was a line in there that I found helpful where he said, you know, from a long enough view, even going to sleep, going back to sleep is a part of waking up. Um, you know, and we humans have our sense of time, I think, is uh, particular. And I hope that, yeah, the times that we've gone back to sleep around racial injustice were still a part of an overall waking up. I'm hoping that this is a longer span of being awake than we've had, than we've ever seen. Yeah, it reminds me of, uh, you know, waking up, uh, going to sleep, the going to sleep part is a privilege, right? And it's heard a lot by white people or people in up power or positions of role or status power. And I was thinking again about that line at that training where people were on the side of hope or hopeless. And I think that is also uh, based on people being asleep because I think a lot of white people uh, believe that somehow we were making progress. And so if we've made so much progress, how can these things still be happening? So it feels hopeless. But I think the point is that we haven't made as much progress as the myth or the belief that we have. And I think that is a really important thing to understand. That, um, And I think people in marginalized groups know this <laughs> a lot better than than us white people, but yeah, I think in some ways the myth of this progress that has been made uh, is kind of dangerous uh, because it makes us believe that we are in a place that we are not. And that's, that in and of itself sounds hopeless, but it is not, uh, I don't think, because we are, uh, we are capable of waking up over and over again. Every time I can fall asleep multiple times a day, and this is what I do for a living, right? So I have a, in every moment I have the opportunity to wake up again, and that is determined based on am I connected to myself and am I connected to other people? You know, I think it's a both and, right? Like mm -hmm. we haven't made as much progress as we right. have the capacity to make, and yet. I think about, you know, in the microcosm of my relationship with my mother and um, when we'll talk about work, when we talk about work, when I talk about the work that I do, when I talk about the things that come out of my mouth in boardrooms <laughs> that Jerry has witnessed <laughs> and other places where I'm able to say the words white supremacy, where I'm able to say to someone who is significantly more power than I do, uh, I think that was a microaggression or um, the way that here's how you impacted me with what you said. 
when I talked to my mother about having choice, that I could speak to my boss, give my boss feedback in a particular way, um, that I don't have to work at this job, that if I want to do something more with my life, that if I want more pleasure and enjoyment and fulfillment. And my mother just looks at me with this face of like, have you lost your mind, child? <laughs> like, that's just not the reality um, that she has in her body. And what her cells know is different from what my cells know about what is possible, about um, it being relatively safe at times for me to be confrontational with people who have more power than I do. Yeah, so, so my life and the potential of it and the capacity of it, which she sacrificed to make possible, is almost dreamlike to her and probably even more dreamlike to her ancestors. I think of when I read the poem and still I rise by Maya Angelou and there's that line, I am the dream and the hope of the slave. Just saying it, I'm already about to bring myself to tears. <laughs> You're verklempt. <laughs> I mean, so there, there is that progress and in the area of personal power, the personal power that especially black people are actualizing and that we're seeing on the television and the solidarity, you know, that people are demonstrating around our right to express and to lay claim to that personal power that's everyone's birthright. Uh, that there is some progress there. Uh, the future that we can imagine is progress. I think about so many of uh, the folks who listen to the podcast and so many folks who are uh, clients. And I think about the, the conflict and, and even the, the tension that exists between hope and hopelessness and the sense of overwhelm. And I think about uh, that and I think about in, in, in my own wishes to get it right uh, the desire to what to do what to do what to do it's almost like a, you know a frantic little mouse running around what do I do what do I do what do I do and um, Regina you use the term ancestors several times and uh Perhaps there's a need to stay connected to our ancestors because um, perhaps our ancestors know what to do, what to do, what to do. And I think in our frantic little lives of, of whether or not we feel the power that we have, we, we can feel small in the face of all of these things. Amanda, you spoke of, of staying connected to your own body, staying connected to your own experience, staying connected to other people. Perhaps the call at this time, the deep, profound call for transformation is a call to remember our ancestors. Who bore so much and uh, fought for our birthright. And that, that informs 
a feeling I have, which is, what is my work to do when I think of myself as someone's ancestor? May two, three, four generations down the line, someone say, that one made a difference. Well, I think what we do is different depending on the bodies we're in and the power we're afforded. And yeah, I mean, I think our ancestors are prob- have probably given us different assignments. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm imagining, Jerry, that your assignment is different from mine and mine is different from Amanda's. Um, I feel like... Uh, yeah, black people, people of color have very different work to do right now than white folks do in, in the conversation around race. Um, Amanda and I even talked about, you know, so our relationship is basically um, the, the best, the most fertile soil for this work. Even as we were preparing to have this conversation with you on the podcast, Amanda had a very different idea of what her work was in order to prepare for this podcast. My work was to um, decenter whiteness. Um, my work was to not work too hard. I was like, I am not gonna, <laughs> I'm not going to, my work was to monitor what whiteness wanted me to do mm-hmm. on this podcast, how whiteness wanted me to prepare for this podcast, the messages whiteness was telling me about my work. I remember saying to Amanda, like, if I can't, you know, show up knowing that my basic being is a value, that all the work I've done, all the preparation I've put into my life is a value, and I can say it in my way, and I can speak my own language around it, you know, which is not what whiteness says. Um, so that was my work to do. My work is to rest. My work is to nourish. My work is to to find the path for my liberation, you know, to continually decenter whiteness and focus on liberation. That's very different than what white people need to be doing right now. And I won't even speak to that. I'll let y'all talk. <laughs> I think, yeah, that's your job. Yeah, my even, work is to figure that out. <laughs> I'm sorry. And I think it's okay. Even among white people, that work looks different, right? Depending on where we are developmentally. So uh, one person's job right now might be to educate themselves. Another person's job might be to work on noticing when guilt or shame is getting in the way of actually doing the work. Or, um, yeah, maybe the work is being willing to give up something, being willing to give up social capital by uh, saying something risky, or being willing to give up time or money or... Yeah, so I think it looks different for everyone and, and part of the work is figuring out what that is for you. I was just going to say that I love the framing of that because I am endlessly and uh, repeatedly fascinated by the question of what is my work to do. Um, and I am reminded of two things. Um, an encounter I had with Ani Pema Chodron, the Buddhist nun, many, many years ago, in which I very frantically 
um, little mouse-like came to her for the wisdom. And I said, you know, I'd been offered a board seat by a Buddhist organization. And I said, you know, oh, Anipema, I don't know what to do. I just want to be a student and I want to sit in the back of the room. And she kind of looked at me. She didn't quite say this word, but it was in her eyes. She said, bullshit. And what she said was, um, your karma is not to sit in the back of the room. Your karma is not to deny that you have power. Um, the path to happiness is not, does not lie through denying karma. But to use that karma, to, to step into that in a way that furthers the, the creation of the world that you want to see. And um, the second thing I'm reminded of is, uh, I'm going to read a little bit of a poem by my uh, good friend Parker Palmer, who wrote in a, in a, in a beautiful poem called The Howering. He wrote, I have plowed my life this way turned over a whole history, looking for the roots of what went wrong until my face is ravaged, furrowed, scarred. Enough, the job is done. Whatever's been uprooted, let it be. Seedbed for the growing that's to come. I plowed to unearth last year's reasons. The farmer plant plows to plant a greening season. Um, I think of that, uh, he wrote that as he was nearing 80. And I think of that as part of that question of what is my work to do? And when will I know that my work is done? And I reread that line now after this conversation with an awareness that sometimes the work to be done is unearthing, is turning the soil so that the soil can become a seedbed for something new to grow. And maybe, maybe I'm experiencing this time as a turning of the soil, finally, so that a seedbed can be laid, so that something new can grow out of this. Maybe, that's my wish. And you don't have to do it alone, even though it is your work to do and everyone's work is unique to them, you don't have to do it alone. And that is as important as figuring out what your work is. There's this concept called collective care that I think is so critical right now that we actually think about how we are coming together, how we are supporting each other in this work, um, in our different circles. And that will look different for white people, it will look different for people of color, etc. But uh, that is really important. We have to do it together, you know? Gina? Yeah, I was looking at my, I love um, Adrienne Marie Brown. She wrote a book called Emergent Strategy, and she also wrote another book called Pleasure Activism. And she talks a lot about 
uh, radical collaboration and the fact that everyone is needed in, the, in this work and no one is special. And um, so she says, and I'm quoting her, uh, if love were the central practice of a new generation of organizers and spiritual leaders, it would have a massive impact on what was considered organizing. If the goal was to increase the love rather than winning or dominating a constant opponent, I think we could actually imagine liberation from constant oppression. And so again, I think, you know, putting love and connection at the center of the work as the reason that the work exists is essential for the kind of social transformation that we're hoping to achieve. Um, so looking at how we can, as Amanda was saying, yeah, do it together. And that requires um, knowing what your work is, being willing to discover what your work is, um, being willing to speak the truth to each other and engage in generative conflict, um, but not kind of letting go of one another no matter what. Like we just don't stop trying to love each other, even in the middle of the pain, the discomfort, uh, microaggression. We just keep coming back to the, to the practice of love and community and connection. That, that was brilliant. I want to thank you both for taking the time to be with me today and to be with all of us today. I know in my heart that the folks who listen to the podcast are going to be moved by our conversation. And uh, I love the fact that we did some work together. And may we continue to do work together. Um, this work feels generative. And thank you for helping me and helping the people who listen to this show. Um, thanks for coming on. If you enjoyed this episode, go to reboot.io slash podcast to listen to all five seasons of our podcast conversations. And leave us a review on iTunes. That's the best way for other people to find and enjoy the show just as you have done. And don't forget to join our mailing list at reboot.io slash sign up so you never miss an episode. Thank you for listening. mean to build organizations of belonging? How can you build an organization safe enough for the whole human to show up at work? In Reboot's newest email course, we discover the hidden power and privilege that can pervade an organization and consider what is needed beyond the HR trends and into matters of the heart to create and sustain real places of belonging for all employees. Compiled and created by the Reboot team of coaches and facilitators, this course is a conversation around the question, how can you contribute to creating an inclusive culture of belonging? The course will unfold via a series of six emails full of content. 
one email per day over six days. And we hope by the end of the course, you have a sense on how you can relate to belonging to yourself, how you create belonging in your communities, work, home, and life. To learn more and to sign up for free, head to reboot.io slash inclusivity.